Father in heaven, thank you for this day and the opportunity that this day holds for us to uh, spend a Sabbath, to put down all of those things that we do that you've appointed for us to do, but you've also appointed us to rest. So we thank you for that, and we honor that today. And one of the good things to do when we're resting is to hear your word, Lord, so let let our hearts be open. And bring us today some word of comfort that can help us in our times of waiting. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you like to wait for things? It's not really something we do a lot anymore. We found out ways to, to rush just about anything. Those times of waiting. Has God ever made you a promise, but then you had to wait a long time before that promise was fulfilled? Maybe you're still waiting. Maybe you're still in the waiting. This happened to a lot of people in the Bible. I want to talk to you about one of them today, and we're we're just going to kind of do a, uh, a survey of this story and really just kind of the first part of this story. But I want to look at the story of King David, and I want to start today in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now, I just want to pause right there because the first thing I want you to realize here is sometimes the promises of God come to us not because we were seeking them. Sometimes he comes to us, maybe in reading the Word or maybe in a word from someone else, and promises us something in our lives that we weren't even praying for, that we weren't even looking for. And I want to I suggest, and I don't think I'm pushing it at all here, to say that David didn't have dreams in his mind that he was going to be king of Israel one day. He wasn't sitting around thinking, oh, I wish the Lord would make me king. In fact, remember, He is the eighth of eight sons. How important is the eighth of eight sons? Well, he's really useful if you need somebody to do something for you, but he's not king of anything, right? How many of you are younger brothers here? Anybody? I don't mean this in the context we did the Luke 15 thing, but meaning you have older siblings. Yeah, see, I have an older sister. I understand the hardships of being a younger brother. David was the youngest. He wasn't looking to be king. He wasn't asking for a promise. And sometimes it comes to us this way. We go on, 1 Samuel 16, verse 2, and Samuel said, How can I go? You see, the Lord said, Go to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've provided a king for myself. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. 
So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, a couple things I want you to notice in this story that I think we lose track of in Bible stories. Because when we're reading these Bible stories about these characters, we know how the story ends, right? Because we've already read the whole story. So you read this story and you think, well, yeah, Samuel was, was going there to anoint him, but Samuel knew how it would all work out. Well, no, he didn't. And Jesse, he's told that he sanctifies his sons, and we think, well, yeah, but we all know it's going to work out. Well, maybe we do, but they don't. And don't forget this when you read the Bible stories. It's not like they know the ending already. They're living life the exact same way you do, and they're confronting the realities one at a time as they occur, and they're trying to deal with them as they go along. What was Samuel uptight about? Well, okay, God says, I'm done with Saul. I want you to go anoint a new king. All right, there's a word for this. Do you know what it is? When you anoint a new king while there still is a king, you know what that's called? That's called treason. And pretty much through the years, the punishment for treason has always been the same, right? You get killed for treason. So God comes to Samuel and says, I want you to anoint David. And as soon as he says that, our minds immediately go to the whole story of David, and we're comfortable with that word from the Lord. But Samuel doesn't even know who David is yet. All he knows is God is saying, I want you to go out and commit an act of treason in my name. It's a little uncomfortable. And there's another thing about this that I find interesting in this story. So... Uh, Samuel shows up in Bethlehem, and, and the story says, and the elders of Bethlehem trembled and said, do you come peaceably? You know, I don't think we really understand the power that was associated with prophets in those days. Again, we're just reading the story. We know the story. And sometimes we think, wouldn't it be awesome if a prophet showed up? Well, apparently it was a little scary sometimes when a prophet showed up because they had to ask him, do you come in peace, or have we really messed up and you're about to destroy our town? We go on, verse 6. So it was when they came that Samuel looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's a famous passage, isn't it? You've heard that one all your life. Did you remember that's the context of it? It's good when we come across those texts we know and we read them in the context where they happen. And, and it makes the point all the more of how David was not expecting to be anything. In fact, we're about to find out he's not even invited yet. Why not? Well, because he has seven brothers in front of him, and his oldest brother was apparently an impressive man. We go on, verse 8. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one, 
Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes. Nobody's expecting David to be the one. Jesse's not expecting it. None of the brothers are expecting it. Samuel's not expecting it. He didn't even get invited to the party. And so I just want to say to you, if you're ever feeling in your life like nobody believes in you, remember, God looks on your heart. You may have all kinds of impressive people in front of you, but God sees your heart. And here's what I want to tell you, and this builds off of something we said uh, a couple weeks ago. Nothing can stop you from accomplishing everything God has appointed you to accomplish if you will be faithful to Him every day of your life. You can be the eighth son with seven impressive brothers, but if God has chosen you to be king, you will be king. So don't give up hope. Don't think that no one sees. God knows. He sees, and He rewards those who are faithful to Him. Now, not all the rewards are going to come in this life, but God reserves eternity to bring about the fullness of reward. So don't lose your hope. Here's David. He wasn't even invited. Verse 12, so Jesse sent and brought David in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So it's a fascinating story. So now David, the youngest brother of the family of Jesse, has been anointed king of Israel. How exciting is that? And the very next day, he took the throne and started to reign, and everything went great. Right? You don't know the story very well if you think that's what happened. The very next day, from then on, his brothers were always incredibly respectful to him. Well, why not? God made a promise, right? That time between the promise and the fulfillment is called the waiting. And the waiting doesn't always go the way we expect. It started off good enough, actually. See, David actually would end up in the court of Saul. And the way it happened was apparently Saul developed over time of being king some sort of a mood disorder where he would at times become very depressed or something like that. And so the suggestion was made, maybe music. And, and I'll just make that suggestion to you too. I've found that music is a really good thing when you're feeling down or, or whatever it is to allow music, whatever it is that speaks to your soul, to take that. So, so one of the advisors said, music, let's try it. And another one said, hey, I know this guy. He's really good. He's, he plays the harp. He's had a lot of time to practice. All he does is sit out in the field with sheep. So he's going to be really good at it. So they said, well, bring him in. So David comes in and plays. And now you can imagine 
David in his mind. I've been anointed king, and now here the Lord has put me in the court of the king. Everything is going according to the plan. Do you ever feel that way in your life when things start happening and you start thinking to yourself, yes, the plan is working out. This is always dangerous thinking. Because our faith begins to be based upon our ability to perceive that what's happening is in fact leading to what God has said, as opposed to our faith being in the fact that God made the promise. It's going to be tested. But it's starting out good. Here he is. He's in the court. And, and as it turns out, at this point, Saul even likes him. 1 Samuel 16, verse 21. So David came to Saul and stood before him. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. It's all going so well. But then David still is a younger brother. The very next chapter tells the story of Israel going to war with the Philistines, and there's a, a particular Philistine by the name of Goliath who comes out every day and challenges the people. Now, was David there? No, because David was the youngest brother, right? The three oldest brothers went off to war with Saul. David stayed home with the sheep. But then Jesse began to wonder how it was going and how his boys were, so he got David, because you always send the youngest on the errands, right? He got David, gave him the stuff, sent him, go check on your brothers, take these things to their commanders. And it, it's really interesting to read because it gives you an insight into the realities of that day. Go and check out what's going on. So, so David goes, and while he's there, he hears Goliath come out and make all these threats. And so David starts asking questions of some of the other men that are there, and guess who starts getting a little annoyed at the mouth of little brother, right? Verse 28, now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when David spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? No one can be as cutting and disdainful as an older brother, can they? Oh, David, why don't you go look after your few sheep? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Well, so this thing plays out. It goes on and on. And finally, David says, I'll go fight him. And he says, I'm going to go out there. And, and then he says these words, verse 45. This is after Goliath says, I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds of the air. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands." Now, these words of David, it would have been very good for him, and I hope he did this, for him to remember these words. 
that the battle is the Lord's. And even when things look hopeless, to trust the Lord is the only thing we need to do. Because as this story goes on, he's going to need to remember that. Well, we know how the battle goes. David wins. Goliath, his head is cut off. All of Israel wins a great victory that day. And we go to the very next chapter, chapter 18, beginning in verse 6. Now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. That didn't go over well. Then Saul was very angry. So we went from Saul loved him to now Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So what would follow this would be Saul's escalating attempts to end David's life. Now the first cautionary tale here is is the response of Saul. Once you've lost your confidence in the Lord, then everyone around you has potentially become your enemy. And you've got to make sure none of them succeed to take your place. Okay, no, that's not the right spirit. In fact, if we were to have a right spirit in us, the one we need most is the one like John the Baptist. Do you remember his? He must increase, I must decrease. To learn that lesson that we have really succeeded when God is glorified, even if in the process the attention goes away from ourselves. But Saul was not in that frame of mind. And so he begins to escalate this process against David. The first time it happens is when he's in one of his moods and David is in there playing his harp. There's a handy spear. And he grabs it and he tries to pin David to the wall. But apparently David was quick. He dodges and he escapes. Then another time he's in his house and and Saul sends men to surround his house and he has to come down through the window to escape and get away. This escalates even more until, until there is actually hostility that develops between Saul and Jonathan because Jonathan is David's good friend. And Jonathan is sure that his dad would never do such a treacherous thing as to try to kill David, who's faithful, who they can count on, who they can believe in. But David's pretty sure, so they set up this test. It's the new moon feast, and they're they're sitting there, and David is missing from the table. And when he's missing, the second day Saul asks about it, and Jonathan tells him, David came to me and said his older brother commanded him to come home for a feast. Again, that's kind of a funny thing, isn't it, to think about? David, the one who's supposed to be king, yet here he is supposedly being commanded by his older brother. It's, it's kind of the time and the way things worked then, but it's an interesting insight. Still, nobody really sees David as king yet. 
But Saul becomes very angry about this. And Saul then says what I think is one of the more ill-advised sayings in all of the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Nope. 1 Samuel chapter 20, sorry. Verse 30. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. I want to recommend to all the fathers out there, no matter how angry you get with your son, don't use this line. (laughs) This is not a useful line, because now you're at war with two family members. Do I, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And he gets so mad, he tries to throw the spear at his own son. Then comes the extended period of David's life where he's fleeing from Saul, where he can't stay anywhere. He was anointed king, wasn't he? God chose him to be king. Why is God letting the inappropriate king chase him all over the countryside? Why is he living in fear? He still doesn't know how this is all going to come out. Remember, we know the end of the story. He doesn't. He's living it day by day by day. Have you ever been in that situation in your life where you feel like God made a clear promise, but there is nothing about reality that suggests that promise is going to come true? It's very easy when that happens to you for you to begin to become tempted to help the Lord fulfill His promise. You ever been tempted to do that? I think a great example of that is the uh, Jacob and Rebekah story. Remember that? Where where God has said that the younger one is going to to be the chosen one and have the greater blessing. And and so Rebekah hears Isaac say he's going to bless Esau. And she's like, oh, time for us to intervene. And tries to step in and help the Lord accomplish his purpose. What did that get them? It got Jacob sent away, didn't it? It brought separation and brokenness to the family. It's not good when we try to help the Lord fulfill the promise He made in our lives. Now, I'm not saying there aren't ways that we cooperate, but mostly what I'm saying here is when we take things into our hands that the Lord does not intend for us to do. And this will happen for David. In fact, it happens twice. You see, he's supposed to be king, but there's this other king, Saul, and he can't be king until Saul's out of the way. And suddenly he finds Saul in a position where he could kill him. But here's the thing, even in that moment, even in the process of getting to the fulfillment of the promise of God, David will not go against principle. And the principle is you do not raise your hand against the Lord's anointed even if the Lord's anointed has turned against his purpose. So David will not take things into his own hands. 
And twice he let Saul escape when he could have killed him. Do you do this in your life? You see, it's so easy for us when we know that what we're doing is God's will and we're trying to achieve God's purpose and we see a shortcut, we see a quicker way to get there, we see a way that we can help God, okay, maybe it's not completely kosher, but it's for the ultimate end, right? The ends justifies the means. I want to suggest to you, in fact, I want to urge upon you, never violate principles in an effort to achieve what God has promised in your life. You don't have to lie, cheat, and steal to achieve what God has promised. But what you do have to do is wait. So then there's war again with the Philistines. And this is the ultimate disaster battle. Saul goes out, and Saul is killed in the fighting, as, are, as is Jonathan and a couple other of Saul's sons. In fact, there's only one son of Saul that remains. So finally it's over, right? Immediately after this, all of Israel came and said, you were anointed king, David. Come and be king over all of us, right? Sometimes even when it looks like the final hurdle has been removed, we're still not there. And that's what happens here. So 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 2. After all this disaster has come upon Israel, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So, Judah. so David is in the area of Judah. He's of the tribe of Judah. They come and make him king of Judah. But unfortunately, there's also verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. You see, David thought that the only hurdle left was Saul, but there's still more. And the promise still isn't fulfilled. You know, it'd be hard to blame David at this point if he was not consumed with discouragement and disappointment. You wonder if he ever thought, are we sure that Samuel wasn't just a little crazy in his old age to come and make that prophecy? What was he even doing? Because this anointing me king has been nothing but hardship and pain and misery. Nothing is working out. You wouldn't blame David if he tried to force things at this point. In fact, there's very few things that he might try at this point that you wouldn't think, well, yeah, why not? Nothing else seems to work. 2 Samuel 3, verse 1, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Really, Lord? Is this the plan? Civil war in Israel? But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. 
Eventually, Ishbosheth and Abner, Abner was the one who set him up, would become at odds. And when that happened, Ishbosheth really lost what was keeping him in that position. And someone came and killed him. And after all of this pain, after all of this hardship, after all of this trouble, finally we get to 2 Samuel chapter 5, and we find these words, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, you are, indeed we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out, and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be the ruler over Israel. Interesting, now all of those things he was doing in the waiting time, now those are the things that they're pointing to and saying, you know, really, it is you. Verse 3, therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. So ultimately the promise, the fulfillment of the promise is long. But I want you to think about something here. When Samuel came to David, how old do you think he was? Let's just take a stab in the dark. He's probably a teenager, right? So let's say he was 15. It was another 15 years till he became king. That's a long time to wait for the promise, isn't it? But here's the thing. That was only how long he waited to become king of Judah because read this next verse. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So in truth, before it was completely fulfilled, was over 20 years. How long are you willing to wait for a promise? Do you trust the Lord? Because really that's what it comes down to. You see, there is, whenever the Lord de declares a purpose in your life, there's, there's three parts to it. There's the initial promise, and then there's the waiting, and then there's the fulfillment. Guess which step of these three is usually the longest? The waiting. I'll give you a little example of this. I like this example with the Bible. So, so in the beginning, God creates the world, and it's a, it's a really great creation that He's done, and God is with them. But that only lasts for Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then comes chapter 3 where we fall away. But the promise is made in chapter 3 that the Lord is going to restore us and that once again the dwelling of God will be with His people. Well, then we go over to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, which is one of the last two chapters of the Bible. So we got the first two, and the last two are the only chapters in the whole Bible where God is with the people. So chapters 1 and 2, then comes the promise, and then 21 and 22 of Revelation, that's the fulfillment. Guess what's in the middle? That's the waiting. 
Most of the Bible is about the waiting. We live here. Okay? We're waiting for the fulfillment. Often, God's purpose takes a long time. He gives us the promise, and then we live by faith, waiting for the fulfillment. But here's what we don't always realize. Sometimes the promise that God has given us is even greater than we imagined. And if we will be faithful through the waiting, what he will be able to accomplish at the end of the waiting will surpass our wildest imagination. And I want to suggest to you this is exactly what he did with David. So it seems that the initial promise was, you, David, will be king. It doesn't seem like the promise was much bigger than that. But the fulfillment of the promise was huge. The first part of it is that not only will David be king, but that he will be the beginning of a line of kings that will come after him. And, and this really comes to light in the context of when David wants to build a temple for God. And he sets out to build a temple, but God sends a prophet to him and says, no, you're not the one to build a temple, but the one who comes after you, your son, will build the temple. And now, it, so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find the prophet speaking for the Lord, saying this to David in verse 8, 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. So he reminds him of how this thing started. You were a shepherd, the youngest of eight sons, and you had no notion of ever being king. But I chose you. I took you from there and I made you king. Verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. So not only is the, pro is the promise to David, but through David comes a bigger promise to the people. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. All right, now what I want you to understand in what God is promising here, there's two realities that he's speaking of. And David doesn't even fully understand the first one, much less the second one. So the initial reality that God is saying is that, that through you and through the blessing to you, I will make a stable place for my people. And that will last certainly into the time of Solomon after him. So it will be fulfilled in his son. 
And the one who comes after you will build me a house that I can dwell with my people. So the literal fulfillment of all of this takes place in Solomon. He comes after David. He builds the temple of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is in that place. The people are at rest. The kingdom that Solomon establishes is one of the most amazing kingdoms that's ever been in the world. And God completely fulfills this. So the original promise was that you will be king, but the fulfillment of the promise is one will come after you who will be even greater. But that's not even the fullness of what God is saying. Because we know that after Solomon, things started to break down, didn't they? Listen to these next two verses that come after this. Verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So the Lord says, in this line, even if there's breakdown, there's going to be trouble. But I will never revoke this promise. Okay, so now you're Israel. And David is a long time ago. And you're living in a time where no son of David is your king. But there is a greater fulfillment for what was said here than any of them imagined. I've got to learn not to do that. There is a greater fulfillment than anyone has imagined. You see, there's going to be somebody else born in Bethlehem who's going to be of the line of David. And he's going to build a house through which God can dwell with his people. Do you remember when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll build it again in three days? And they didn't realize at the time that the house he was speaking of was his body? The ultimate fulfillment of this promise is Jesus. And listen to what it says, because it can only be Him. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. Did the throne of Solomon's kingdom last forever? No. But who is the king that will be king forever? Jesus. Do you see what can happen when you believe the promise, faithful through the time of waiting, and receive the fulfillment? It's even more than you imagined. So don't give up. Has God made you promises? I'll tell you, there's one promise that, that God has made us that we know, and that is that when Jesus comes again, He will restore to us the ones we love that we've lost, right? We're in the waiting, aren't we? What is required for us to see the ones we love when Jesus comes again? It's to be faithful, isn't it? Through the waiting not to lose heart. Jesus Himself made the promise, if I go, I will come again. And we are part of the waiting. We're waiting 
for Jesus to come again. But what I want to suggest to you is the waiting is an important time. Because it is in the waiting that God works with us, that He molds us, that He gives us the chance to show love to each other. And it is in that time when our faith is proven. Romans chapter 5, Paul speaks about this with words that we know from another context. I'll point it out when we get to it. You may notice it before I say it. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. You see, the waiting is full of tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. There's that word again. If you had the Greek there, it would be hupomone, patient endurance. That's the only way to survive the waiting. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because the love of God is poured out in us through the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. That's what the waiting is for. It makes us who God has called us to be. It makes us ready for the fulfillment. So God makes this promise to David. And I remember some years ago I was reading through this and it really struck me. And this whole passage really struck me. And David's response that comes after this in verse 18, he says, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? I, I loved it so much that I asked Alicia if she would write it out for me in calligraphy. And she did very beautifully. And it hangs on the wall of our house. And in fact, my father-in-law, Alicia's father, did a little watercolor thing around the outside of it. And it's just really awesome. And uh, it's this passage, and it really struck me as I was reading it. But there was one part in particular that struck me because it happened at a time when our children were very young. And I felt like God made a promise to me from this passage. Not that we're going to be kings of anything, but that He spoke to me through these verses. And, and the prayer of my heart was that my children would be established in faith. And that they would be a part of God's purpose and God's kingdom. And I felt like what he said to me was this. Beginning in verse 14. I will be their father. And they shall be my sons and daughter. If they commit iniquity, I will chasten them with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men but my mercy shall not depart from them. I feel like that's a promise God made me. And to me, it's a promise that says they're not going to go smoothly from here to the end. There's going to be challenges. And sometimes they're going to make mistakes, and the Lord is going to allow the world to bring consequences upon them. but He's not going to take His mercy from them. 
I'm hanging on to that promise. Now, they've had their challenges, but I, I can't say that they've been really bad or anything like that, but I, but I know it's a long road. And I know that if the Lord does not return in my lifetime, I won't even see the end of that road. But I'm hanging on to that promise that the Lord will not take His mercy from them. What promises has the Lord made you? Are you in the time of waiting? I want to say to you today, don't give up, don't give in, even if it doesn't look like it's working out. It looked like it was working out for David early on, but when he was closest to what God had promised was when it looked the least good. Hang on. Trust the promises of the Lord and be faithful in the time of waiting. Keep believing. Don't get discouraged or give up. We are in the waiting. God will keep His promises. Trust Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to be faithful in the waiting so that when you fulfill your word, we will have great joy in our hearts in knowing that doubt and worry never made us stop believing. We commit ourselves again today to the promises you've made in our lives recognizing that we may not even live to see their fulfillment, but also knowing, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that death is not a barrier that stops you from fulfilling your purpose. We trust you, Lord, and we believe. And so we nestle ourselves under your wings trusting that what you have promised, you are able to deliver. In Jesus' name, amen.